The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book and many others. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdeny. The Attack Against the Family, Calcedon Position Paper, Number 23 Earlier this year, 1981, I was a witness in the trial of some fathers for having their children in a Christian school which refused to submit to state controls. Some of the fathers were prominent citizens of that county. The charges against them were criminal charges. The state's attorney general granted immunity to their wives, who were then compelled to take the stand and testify against their husbands or face contempt of court charges. At two points, this step meant a radical break with biblical law. First, according to Scripture, Husband and wife are, quote, one flesh, unquote, a community of life and members one of another. Genesis 2:24, Matthew 19, 5 through 6, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. As a result, the one cannot testify against the other. Spousal testimony for the prosecution is thus barred. Second, the testimony must come from two or more witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, Hebrews 10.28, Numbers 35.30, Deuteronomy 19.15, 2 Corinthians 13.1, 1 Timothy 5.19, and John 8.17. Confession in itself is not enough to convict. There has to be corroborating evidence as in Achan's case, Joshua nine twenty through 23 As a result, enforced confession is rendered meaningless because corroboration and witnesses are required. As a result of these laws, very early, despite abuses, justice reached a remarkably high level in Israel. 
torture had no place in the law, and the burden of proof was placed on witnesses and the court. This biblical principle had difficulty establishing itself in a barbarian Europe. Legal processes were much simpler, given the, quote, right, unquote, to use spousal testimony, or the, quote, right, unquote, to torture. Historians for many years treated all victims of such legal procedures as necessarily innocent. Now, some scholars are finding that the evidences indicate a high rate of guilt. Then, as now, a high percentage of those arrested were guilty men, because conviction was held to be desirable, ungodly and evil means were used to secure it. In example, torture, enforced confessions, and spousal testimony. The Fifth Amendment and the legal bars against spousal testimony represent one of the slowest yet most important victories in legal history. That victory is now being compromised and the door open to legal terrorism. Many Americans were delighted a few years ago when members of criminal syndicates were brought before congressional committees, granted immunity, and ordered to testify. To have testified meant death for these men from their cohorts. To refuse to testify meant jail for contempt of court. A clever ploy that most Americans thought, failing to realize that the same tactics could be used against them. Moreover, few realized that the horrors of Tudor and Stuart, England, and such instruments of tyranny as the Star Chamber proceedings now have their revival in the arbitrary powers of congressional committees and bureaucratic agencies. Congress and the bureaucracy are the old tyrant writ large. Moreover, at the same time, several states are relaxing the laws against spousal testimony. The stage is set for the kind of tyranny which prevails in the Soviet Union. It is dangerous there for a husband and wife to know too much about each other. It can be forced out of them. As a result, there is little exchange of confidence in many cases, and yet, even with that, coerced false testimonies. Even worse, some very foolish churchmen refuse to see that a problem exists. Legal convictions are more important to them than the doctrine of Christian marriage and the moral value of freedom. It is important to remember that the goal of the law is not conviction, but justice. And, in biblical law, justice is not only a matter of righteousness in life and society, but also in all procedures of law. God's law specifies the laws of evidence, hearings, and more, because justice is basic to every step of the conduct of the agencies of law in church and state alike. Moreover, to endanger the family is to endanger the basic institution of society according to biblical law. The family is under attack. First, as we have seen, the unity of the twain as one flesh is being attacked by the weakening of the laws against spousal testimony. Such a step reduces marriage to a matter of sexual and economic convenience rather than the basic God-ordained unit of society. It is an anarchistic and atomistic 
step. Second, abortion legalizes murder in the life of the family at the option of the mother so that the cradle of life becomes a place of death. God gives to the family all the basic powers in society, control of children, property, inheritance, welfare, and education, save one, the death penalty. This is the reason why Cain was not executed for murder. All those then living were his immediate family. Ancient paganism, as in Rome, gave the father the power to destroy his own children. Our modern paganism, humanism, is even worse. It gives this power to the mother, so that the very womb or matrix of life becomes also the place of murder. Will the children of mothers who aborted a brother or sister as readily espouse euthanasia for their parents in the days ahead? Abortion goes hand in hand with a contempt for the biblical doctrine of the family. As Kent Kelly, Abortion, the American Holocaust, 1981, Calvary Press, 400 South Bennett Street, Southern Pines, North Carolina, 28387, at $2.95, points out, Abortion has taken more lives than all the wars in our history, which from 1775 to 1975 took 1,205,291 lives, whereas deaths by abortion are at 8 million lives. Third, the family is under attack because its biblical legal powers are being replaced by status powers over the family. The biblical family is the basic law order so that it is more than a sexual arrangement. If the family is not more than a sexual arrangement, then any and all sexual arrangements can claim equivalent privileges as they are now doing. The Bible, however, sees the union of man and woman as the basic law order and the fundamental unit of society. Marriage creates a new unit. The twain become one flesh. As such, they have powers and responsibilities possessed by no other element of society. The family is the matrix of the future, and as a result, God entrusts the control of the future to the family, not to the church nor to the state. Both church and state have a duty to protect the family, not to control it. Biblical law, by giving control over children, property, inheritance, welfare, and education to the family ensures that it will be the matrix of the future. See Chalcedon Position Paper number 8, quote, The Family, unquote. Because the state is given the power of the death penalty, it is the most dangerous agency of all for man to entrust any planning to. The state plans by means of coercion so that its planning for the future inescapably involves repressive legislation, taxation, controls, regulations, and, sooner or later, the death penalty. For the state to be made the agency for planning and future development is a form of social suicide. The hangman has one solution to social problems, and it is a swinging one. Without agreeing with all that he meant by it, 
We can echo Martin Luther's comment that the prince or the state is God's hangman. To make the hangman our caretaker and planner is the height of stupidity, but it is also a folly that modern man is very much addicted to. Fourth, the family as the basic unit is being replaced in some circles by the atomistic individual. The rise of this social atomism has preceded much of what we are describing. The playboy philosophy and mentality is an example of this atomism. The ultimate arbiter of all things becomes the atomistic and anarchistic individual. Early in the 1970s, Dorothy and I met a young woman in her mid-twenties. Hers was a remarkable and startling beauty, and her two little daughters shared her beauty. Her husband had left her. He said frankly that he had no complaints. She was, quote, tops, unquote, in every department. But he was, quote, bored, unquote, with living with one woman and supporting a household. He wanted freedom to use his money as he saw fit and to do as he pleased without a, quote, guilt trip, unquote. Such moral anarchism is widespread and increasingly vocal. It is simply original sin, the desire of man to be his own God and law, determining for himself what constitutes good and evil. Genesis 3, 5. Such moral anarchists talk much about the separation of church and state. For them, it means freedom from religion and the enforced silence of Christians on all matters of law and morality. See Frank Brady on the Playboy position in Hefner, page 219F, 1974. Such people want to abolish religious freedom in favor of religious toleration. Toleration was the position of ancient Rome. A religion was tolerated if it submitted to licensure, regulation, taxation, controls, and certification. And with all this, was silent where Rome wanted religion to be silent. It was apparent after the November 1980 U.S. election that great segments of the press and U.S. federal government want to abolish religious freedom in favor of religious toleration. This is clearly the policy of the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, and not even as outwardly tolerant as the turkey of the murderous sultans. No small contributing factor to the rise of this atomism has been the rise of pietism in the modern era. Christianity was reduced to the experience of the individual soul. Now, certainly the conversion of the individual is the starting point, but it is the starting point, not the sum total, of Christian faith and life. To so limit Christianity, as pietism has done, is comparable to limiting all literature to the alphabet and abolishing all poetry, history, law, and more, in the name of the purity of the alphabet. We begin with a court case and the compelling of spousal testimony. People who fail to see the far-reaching implications of that case have retreated from the world-encompassing scope of our Lord's word, power, and government to a small-scale God and religion. They may love their family, but they fail to see its meaning under God. This is the key. All things must be viewed, not from the perspective of the state nor the individual, 
but in terms of God and His law word. Quote, For with thee is the fountain of life, in thy light shall we see light. Unquote. Psalms 36.9 This is as true of the family as all things else. The modern age is given to absurd, humanistic platitudes to justify its moral idiocy. Isadora Duncan, for example, once said very self-righteously, quote, Nudity is truth. Therefore, it can never be vulgar. It can never be immoral, unquote. This she said in Boston from the stage of Symphony Hall, whereupon she tore her tunic down and bared one of her breasts. What her sententious spoutings failed to say was that people can be vulgar and people can be immoral, and Isadora Duncan was both vulgar and immoral. The world is full of such nonsense in all quarters. Cotton Mather, who should have known better, wrote, in Manaductio ad Ministerium, 1726, quote, My son, I advise you to consider yourself as a dying person. I move you, I press you, to remember how short your time is, unquote. What he should have said was, Remember, you are a living person under God, accountable for all your talents and days. If you are faithful and responsible in life, you have nothing to fear from death. The best preparation for death is life, and the God-ordained matrix and locale for life is the family. Therefore rejoice in the wife of thy youth. Proverbs 5, 15-21 Praise God our Savior, and serve Him in all things with all your heart, mind, and being. August 1981 The Great Fear and the Great Faith Chalcedon Position Paper Number 24 Otto J. Scott in Robespierre, The Voice of Virtue, calls attention to all important phenomenon of the French Revolution, the Great Fear. At a certain point, as corrosion began to destroy all forms of social order, wild rumors circulated through all of France. Fears of invasion, of disintegration and chaos Quote, destroyed the sense of stability and security essential to civilized patterns and orderly ways, unquote. Evil seemed to have become incarnate and dominant over history. Quote, there was a general, unexpressed sense that a true diabolism had appeared and evil that sent a shudder through the land. Men who had long forgotten God began to believe the devil was real, unquote. Page 69F, Ross House Books, $9.50. The Bastille fell on July 14, 1789. For the rest of that summer, the French people also fell, in their case into the great fear, La Grande Pure. None of their fears were true, but their content, Eugene Rosenstock Husey pointed out, was not the significant fact. Quote, it was this complete paralysis of will and reason, the deep insight that one was no longer safe on land. Unquote. Out of Revolution, page 131, Argo Books. It was the sign of disintegration. Evil and madness took over, because there was despair concerning any good. 
France went into the reign of terror subsequently, but the terror first began in men's minds with the great fear. According to Rosenstock Husey, every revolution begins with a great fear. It appeared before the peasants' revolt of Luther's day, and it again appeared in Germany in the year 1930, preceding Hitler. Frederick II, in 1227, described the great fear in his day. So intense was it that he said, quote, The power of love itself, by which heaven and earth are governed, seems now to be troubled, not in its later flowing, but at the very source, unquote. The great fear marks first the breakup of man's inner being. His way of life is shattered. Man in such eras and now live on borrowed capital on the inheritance of the past. They assume old religious standards and values without really believing in them. The old faith of society declines from a religious imperative to a convention and an accepted custom. Then the surface begins to crack and men are suddenly without the religious resources for crisis. They become fearful and guilt-ridden, and they start at shadows. The inner breakup precedes the outer breakup. The collapse begins in man's soul and rapidly extends into his society, which begins to disintegrate and go up in flames. Indeed, the flames of destruction become then the only active and potent social force. In Britain's 1981 summer riots, the rock music groups had a major part in preparing the youth for the enactment of destruction and breakup. Significantly, Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols has summed up the, quote, hard rock, unquote, view on life. Quote, we are the future, no future, unquote. Christopher Mako's White Trash, 1977. Modern youth culture, with its love of rock music and drugs, is determined that there be no future. The older generation sees this with horror and without faith. The war against the establishment is more than that. It is a war against yesterday, today, and tomorrow, against past, present, and future. Youth sings of belonging, quote, to the blank generation, unquote, to a world without meaning or direction. The Bible also speaks of the end and of the results of the great fear. It is death, Proverbs 8, 36. Our Lord declares that the time shall come when men shall say to the mountains, quote, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us, unquote. Luke twenty three thirty, as they seek vainly to escape God's judgment. In Revelation six sixteen. We are again given the cry of men in the grips of the great fear. They say to the mountains and rocks, quote, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Unquote. Again, in Revelation 9, 6, we read, quote, And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Unquote. The great fear begins, as Rosenstock Husey saw, in the conscience of man. It is a religious fact, and it is a manifestation of man's spiritual state. As our Lord said, quote, Men's hearts shall fail them for fear, unquote. Luke twenty-one twenty-six. 
There is reason enough for that fear. By their unbelief, men have destroyed the foundations of social order. Their world is crumbling because its moral base is gone. To admit this fully means to repent and to turn to the Lord, which men will not do. As a result, they seek to provide a political, economic, or military justification for their fears. It is usually true that the political scene is an evil one, the economic sphere a decaying one, and the military situation deplorable. To stress these factors can mean covering up the religious breakup behind them. Evading this religious issue, the collapse of man's faith for living, leads to quackery. Easy solutions which deal with the surface sores of the deeply rooted cancer are, very popular today, how to profit from world disaster. Quick! Invest in coffins and cemetery lots. There is a lot of death ahead and big profits in death-related industries. The great fear is creeping upon us and it is in evidence in embryo form on all sides. Occultism and interest in the demonic are precursors of it. So too, and especially so, is unbelief and lukewarm religion. The great fear means a wild and irrational proneness to believe in anything. This is common to a rationalistic and irreligious age. When men believe nothing, they are then most susceptible to believe anything and everything. To believe in God and His infallible Word is to limit all possibilities and beliefs in terms of God and His Word. If we believe in a world of chance, then we believe in a world of total irrationality and in every kind of irrational possibility. The triumph of humanism, science, and anti-God thinking has always marked the rise of superstition and illogical beliefs. In Greece, Rome, the late, quote, Middle Ages, unquote, and now, this is true. If God's predestined and absolute order is denied, then man can only believe in a radically irrational and illogical world in which anything goes except God's order. And man, when he sees himself as a chance product of a blind world of chance occurrences, is on the verge of the great fear. We are on the verge of another and the most extensive great fear in history. The corrosive forces of humanism are worldwide in their influence. The only thing that can counteract and overcome the deadly personal and social effects of the great fear is the great faith. Faith today has been reduced to easy believism, to a mere assent to doctrine, and to a verbal profession. In fact, one church today is, as it has been for several years, hounding an able theologian whose only offense is to agree with Scripture that, quote, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone, unquote. James 2:17. And why not? Let such a text and position stand, and churchmen might be expected to manifest their Christianity in action. The great faith manifests the power of God in history. John 1, 12. It declares, quote, For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Unquote. 1 John 5, 4. 
The great faith declares, quote, If God be for us, who can be against us? Unquote. Romans 8, 31. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans eight thirty seven. The great faith is not shopping for rapture robes, but putting on the whole armor of God. Ephesians six ten through 18 The great fear is preceded not only by the general meaninglessness of life, but also by escapism. This takes various forms. Certainly, alcoholism and drugs are obvious forms of this escapism, which is the forerunner and accompaniment of the end. The end of any age is the death of the faith of that age, and without faith, man cannot live in either poverty or luxury. The emptiness of life overwhelms him wherever he is and whatever his station. Empty man tries to find meaning in empty goals and short-term interest. A few years back, a slightly drunk man approached me to unload his random thoughts. I later learned that he was a man of some means, with a beautiful home in the hills, an alcoholic, and a homosexual. Life in Berkeley, California, his home, was incredibly dull. He said enough to drive one to suicide. The only thing that made life bearable for him was the realization that when things were impossible, he could escape to San Francisco for the weekend. I suggested, then why not move to San Francisco? He looked at me as though I were an idiot and said, before moving on, if I lived in San Francisco when I got bored, I would have no place fit to go to and no choice but to commit suicide. Life for him meant having a small goal ahead and no more. But limited and petty goals grow empty also. When man is empty and his world dead of all meaning, this is the prelude to the great fear. It has been said with some evidence that the great fear was created by conspiracy. Adrian Duport of the Club Brayton devised the scheme to demoralize France. Rumors were started all over France to announce the approach of Austrians and English to massacre the people. The result was the breakdown of law and order. The point, however, is that people were ready to believe in anything. There was no hard common sense, not any strong faith, by means of which data could be assessed. One of the most obvious facts of the French Revolution was the sorry performance of the clergy, Catholic and Protestant, Huguenot. Both groups were heavily influenced by the modernism of the day, or too wrapped up in pietism to be relevant. There was no backbone of faith to resist anarchy. Had Adrian Duport never existed, the great fear would have still occurred. It was the product of the breakup of the inner man. His world was collapsing, and he too had collapsed. Earlier, I cited the words of Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, quote, We are the future, no future, unquote. Rock music openly declares the death of all meaning. It celebrates death, contempt for purposes, and a resolute refusal to be other than suicidal. The war against life and meaning began with the sexual revolution, or rather came out into the open then. Henry Miller set the tone in Tropic of Cancer when he declared his book to be, quote, a prolonged insult, 
a gob of spit in the face of art, a kick in the pants to God, man, destiny, time, love, beauty, what you will, unquote. With the Marquis de Sade, the modern age says not, quote, let there be light, unquote, but let there be universal and cosmic darkness. Now the age has nothing left ahead of itself except the great fear. The popular culture around us is empty and suicidal. It is geared to the existentialist moment. Because for all the modern minds, nothing else is real. Man, said Jean-Paul Sorte, is a futile passion, and he well described the existentialist mind. Modern youth is passionate, and it is also futile. Its passion is death-oriented. Towards life and work, its reaction is one of boredom and retreat. It is an interesting and revealing fact that in England, Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans are in disrepute. Cromwell's regime, whatever its faults, was England's last experience with a commanding great faith. One thing has since been clear. England has been more ready to honor the likes of the Beatles than Oliver Cromwell. As a result, the land of Cromwell is a very central part of the worldwide breakup of the inner man and the outer society. The great faith must be biblical. It must know and apply God's law word to the totality of life and thought. God is Lord, not only over the church and man's soul, but over all of life. If he has no word for education, politics, the arts and sciences, and all things else, then he is not God, but one of the many limited and local spirits called gods by the pagans of old. The Bible speaks to all of life. The premise of Scripture in God's law is that, quote, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, unquote. Psalms 24, 1. As creator of all, the Lord God is the ruler of all, and his word speaks to all things. The great faith lives by the every word of God, Matthew 4, 4, and it applies God's total word to all of life, September 1981. The Image of God in Man The Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question 10, asks, quote, How did God create man? Unquote. And answers, quote, God created man male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Unquote. Genesis one twenty seven F, Colossians three ten, Ephesians four twenty four. Centuries earlier, the Jewish commentator Joseph Kimhai, eleven o five to eleven seventy, had written quote, "Image is dominion, and likeness is rulership." not a physical image, unquote. This interpretation goes back at least to Sadia Gaon's translation of the Torah and is the ancient understanding of the meaning of the image of God. Fallen man, of course, seeks an ungodly dominion and rule, one in defiance of God and his law. However, the obvious implication of regeneration is that the man in Christ is renewed in godly dominion and into rule under God. 
For him to fail to exercise such dominion is a sin. The ancient interpretation of the creation of man is that Genesis 1.26 says, quote, And God said, Let us make man in our image, in example, dominion, after our likeness, rulership, and let them have dominion, unquote. Dominion is thus a requirement God makes of us in our very creation. In our regeneration, this requirement is again in force. Just as the judgment of God fell on Adam for a false concept of dominion, so it will fall on us if we deny the dominion mandate. Our Lord requires it in the Great Commission. We must disciple all nations, quote, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, unquote. In this task, we serve the Lord to whom, quote, all power is given in heaven and in earth, unquote. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We cannot reject dominion and rule without rejecting our Lord's calling. September 1981. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Lord of life.